Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Uh, I'll invite you to turn to Genesis 22 this morning. We're going to be back in this chapter again, and I didn't know specifically what to read. We're going to look at, hopefully, try to back up and, and see the big picture of what was going, or some interesting implications or some typology here in Genesis 22. So I didn't know what specifically to pick out, but I think we're just going to read the whole thing again. If you're involved in our missional communities, this means we're now reading Genesis 22 for like the fifth or sixth time together in the past couple of weeks. But it's not going to hurt any of us to let the Word of God to do its work. So since that is one of our core convictions uh, is truth, is the, the, the goodness of God's Word, we're going to read Genesis 22 through verse 19 together again this morning in worship. This is Genesis chapter 22, 1 through 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, 
I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. So why are we in Genesis again? I think this is a question we kind of we need to maybe revisit occasionally. If we, uh, as a new church, we're almost kind of approaching two years old. Why are we working through the book of Genesis? This is a big book, lots of options. Why are we going through the book of Genesis? What, what is, why is this the book we do uh, sequential expository preaching here. For the most part, we like to work through books of the Bible verse by verse, passes by passage, and give the meaning of what the text is about. But why Genesis? And we've mentioned many times this quote from A.W. Pink. Um, it's in his, it's actually just right in the introductory of his book called Gleanings in Genesis. You can get, it's a free PDF online. It's not hard to find. A.W. Pink, Gleanings in Genesis. But in his introduction, he says, that appropriately has Genesis been termed the seed plot of the Bible. For in it we have in germ form almost all of the great doctrines which are afterwards fully developed in the books of Scripture which follow. And he goes on in this explanation there in this introduction, he goes on and talks about all the doctrines that we find in Genesis, how important Genesis is really for how we read the rest of the Bible, for in fact how we view the rest of life. Here's some of the doctrines that, just as a sample, here's some of the doctrines that he speaks of seeing in the book of Genesis. We have God as the creator. We have hints of the Trinity. We have the nature of man. We have the wiles of Satan. We have the truth of sovereign election, the truth of salvation, justification by faith, the believer's security. We have the truth of the holiness and separation of God's people. We have God's discipline and yet his grace. We see the value and the importance of prayer. We see the continuation of this life into something beyond it. We see the divine incarnation, hints of the incarnation. We see the death and the resurrection of the coming seed. We see the, the coming Savior's exaltation as king, all of these foreshadowings. We see his coming priestly role when we think about people like Melchizedek. We see the coming of an antichrist, that there's a, an enemy against God's people. And we see the judgment of God on the wicked. All of these things packed in to the book of Genesis in seed form. And so it's, it's so important and beneficial to work through a book like this because there are so many important things that will be developed as you read on the rest of your Bible. So there are many reasons that we want to really work at understanding the book of Genesis. There are major doctrines that there we begin to be informed about. Significant revelations concerning the nature and the character of God. There's also just a simple narrative. Like there's so much this, this storyline of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph that is coming up in the book of Genesis that, that the Bible will reference so many times. There's just a simple narrative of Genesis that's really important to understand and to have packed away. But it also 
it also sets the stage for a grand narrative that God is working in his world. You look at Genesis and you think about its time thousands of years ago and this purpose that God is working, this grand narrative, this grand story, far bigger than just our little lives, that God is trying to draw out our attention to some big purposes. It's setting the stage for this grand narrative that God is working in his world. I, I think one of the saddest observations you can make of our modern world is the desperation for something transcendent. This desperation for some sort of purpose some sort of meaning that this, there's got to be more to this life than just the circumstances that I'm caught in, just the drama at my job, just the difficulty in my family relationships, just my own personal discouragement or whatever it may be, or, or my own personal wins. There's, you see so many stories of people who go on to uh, succeed so well and yet find themselves at the end of all this success still just empty and, and longing for something more. There's this hunger for life to be about something big. We have this, this innate desire for life to be about something. You know, I'm not a, a history expert, but with a little bit of research, you can see how this enlightenment period where everything becomes about reason and rationale and, and science and observable realities, it robs the world of mystery, of, of magic, if I could use that word, and, but of this metaphysical purpose. We long for there to be a point. If all that the world is is just this material existence, then the world is a very dark and sad and lonely place. If, if all there is is just, if, if we are just spinning our way into non-existence, then love means nothing, sorrow really means nothing, and existence is sadly just a blip in the overwhelming wave of nothingness. <laughs> and so we, we long for this world to be worth about something. And so we, we ask questions, why are we here? Why is there something instead of nothing? Where is it all going? What is the point? But with a mindset that, that sees the world just as uh, this materialistic ball mass that we're floating on and going forward on, it's easy to see why we begin to grasp at various religious platitudes to try to bring different comfort. You know, when we see we start seeing signs in the heavens of our deceased loved ones speaking back to us. What that really is, is, is a, a call in us for life to be about something more than just this world. It's understandable why we look around and try to find significance in something outside of just this world because there's this longing. There's got to be a point when we, when we talk about with such great confidence, you'll see the world about our loved ones going on to a better place, though really maybe their life doesn't show that they ever cared about a better place or a future place or had no confession of a desire for a better place, we want to put them there because we want life to be about something bigger than just what's happening right here, right now. And this is one thing that Genesis communicates to us. If we will read this book and see what God is doing, he is doing something 
huge beyond our comprehension. We see a transcendent working of God's purposes that tells us that life is about something far greater than just this little blip that we get to witness. Your life, our life, this world, this cosmos is about something far greater than what we witness here in our little time space moment. And that's important because this helps us raise our sights. It gives us hope. It gives us purpose. It gives us meaning. It gives us encouragement. It gives us courage for the day because something bigger is happening. When, when all the highs and lows that we experience in this life are put in the context of this grand thing God is doing, then thing are put, things are put in their proper perspective. Seeing this will give us the perspective that we need to endure, to endure and to enjoy the various circumstances in this life. It, it enables us to live bravely and sacrificially because we know who is in charge of it all. It empowers us to have moments of humiliation and exaltation and not be crushed because we know how this is all going to turn out. There is a transcendent creator who is governing over all things and seeing all things to their appointed end. The question is, do we see the bigness and grandness of this God and are our lives settled in him and in his purposes or in our small selves and our small purposes? And so this is what Genesis, and this is what Genesis 22, I think, does in lots of interesting ways. So Genesis 22 is, is spoken of, you know, it's, it's, it's this microcosm. Even if, if the book of Genesis is a seed plot, Genesis 22 is its own little, like, special place. Because there are so many doctrines and so many interesting things about the nature and character of God that are introduced to us in Genesis 22. This, this chapter is just called the binding in the Hebrew Bible, the Akedah. The, 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 the Jewish uh, common theologians all refer to this as a very special chapter, even in their, in their canon of, of the Akedah, this, the binding of Isaac. And as one commentator says, that this is the closing bookend to Abraham's discovery of God's sufficiency. It's, this is the, the closing act, Abraham's discovery of God's sufficiency to achieve the promises made at Haran. This is a culmination of all these events of Abraham's life. Now, last week, Jim worked through this text and, and did a great job pointing out the, the details of what's, what's going on in this storyline, what the theological implications are. And if you missed that week, then I implore you, I actually, I, I insist it's on the podcast feed. If you missed it last week, go and listen to that. Because this one is kind of set in the context of that one. You need that big narrative of what God is doing there in that text. So I insist for your own health and well-being, okay, this is how important this is. Go listen to Jim's sermon last week on Genesis 22. But with that said, we're back in this text. And I say that because not because Jim did a bad job, but there's so much to see here. There's so much to see here. This passage is just brimming over with imagery and typology that will get worked out in the rest of our Bibles. So we're going to look at just four of them this morning in our remaining time. The first one is just location. If you got your Bible out, or if you don't, get it back out. We're going to do a little jumping around this morning. Go with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, about halfway through this gospel account. 
Jesus has got his disciples there. He's doing some, he's doing some teaching and he's, you see in the, if you got titles there, he's lamenting over Jerusalem and his sorrow over this, the city of God, Jerusalem. And the Pharisees come to him and they, they say in verse 31, get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. And he says to him, go and tell that fox. That's not a compliment on his looks. He says, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day, again, three days. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now, if you've read the gospel accounts, you know that Jesus faces uh, attack and, and kind of people uh, gather around him, seek to throw him off of a cliff, try to rise up and, and kill him in many different places as a prophet. They're, they're angry at the things that he says and they try to kill him. But Jesus insists that he must die at Jerusalem. This is several thousand years again after Abraham, but Jesus insists that if he's going to die, which he knows that he is, his death must occur at Jerusalem. Well, what in the world is that about? Why would he say that? Well, because the crucifixion of Jesus has a particular and explicit connection to this binding of Isaac and to this ram that is brought out and sacrificed as a substitute in Isaac's place. If you go back in Genesis 22, keep your Bible, we'll be flipping around a little more, but there in Genesis 22, verse 2, Abraham has commanded, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Right? So this is this particular land, Moriah, that they are three days' journey away from, that God says, take your son to Moriah. So they go and they travel, and this is the location where this binding happens. Now flip with me back to 1 Chronicles we're doing a little Bible workout this morning. It's good for us. Go to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, a little further back in your Old Testament. I'd give you the page number, but that wouldn't help you at all. 1 Chronicles 21, verses 18 through 30. Sorry, these aren't on the, they're there. There's the, the reference. Uh, that doesn't give you page numbers either. Uh, 1 Chronicles is about this deep in my Bible. Does that help you? 1 Chronicles chapter 21, in verse 18, we won't read all of this. You can read it for yourself later. Just an interesting moment in Israel's history. This is towards the end of David's life, and he orders a census, and it displeases God. God, he's, he's not to do this, but Abraham, uh, David commands Joab, and Joab obeys. It was a fascinating character in, in Scripture. Joab obeys, and they go to a census. It displeases God, and God, in response, gives David basically three choices of punishment for his disobedience, and, and David won't pick. He says, leaves it in God's hands. So you, you read on down verse uh, 18. Uh, verse, let's go to verse 21. David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. David said to Ornan, Give me the side of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. Ornan said to David, Take it, let the Lord the king do what seems good to him. Say, I give the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, I will buy them for a full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. 
So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site, and David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded his angel and the sword put his sword back into its sheath. The, the decimation, the killing of these people stopped. The, God's justice, God's judgment was abated by David offering sacrifice at this site of Ornan the Jebusite, his threshing floor. So he buys this place. You look on down, verse 1 of chapter 22. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. Now we're going to bring these two together, because all we've seen so far is they're going to go to Mount this region of Mount Moriah for the binding of Isaac and now this threshing floor. But you go on to 2 Chronicles uh, chapter, do I have it up here? Yeah, chapter 3, verse 1. That's just the next book in your Bible. 2 Chronicles 3. Then David has bought this land. Here's where the temple is going to be built. Here's where the place of worship for God is going to happen. Second Chronicles chapter 3, Then Solomon began to build the house of Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So in this section, this is the location where Solomon now builds his temple, where we will see the sacrifices throughout the, the, the millennium of, of God's people offering substitutionary sacrifices, offering grain sacrifices, making all these offerings to God in obedience to his commands at this location where of Jerusalem this, this region of the Mount of Moriah, this location is not, it, it's so easy to get caught up in this, and it is an interesting narrative of Isaac here in Mount Moriah, Genesis 22. But look how this, this region, this location is not just about its moment. It's about David offering this sacrifice, Solomon building a temple, all the way thousands of years later, Jesus walking around in the area of Judea. And he says, there's only one place that I must go to die. And it is this place in fulfillment almost of this foreshadowing of the binding of Isaac. Incredibly, and you could go on to Revelation 21 and 22, where what do we see? A holy city, Jerusalem, the area of Mount Moriah, coming down from heaven and joining earth. This place where God dwells, where you do see the Lamb of God in Revelation 4 and 5, the Lamb as though slain here at the temple, being lowered down. This, this place, this location runs all the way from Genesis 22 on through the rest of Scripture in fulfillment of this incredible moment. Something incredible is happening here. More than just the binding of Isaac, it's pointing towards some incredible moment. And that culmination is Jesus giving his life a willing sacrifice at this location and as the antitype, the fulfillment of all that this is pointing to. So incredibly, this moment in Genesis 22 is something we can trace through the whole of Scripture. God is doing something huge. So we see location, we see substitution. This passage is, is a significant foreshadowing of this theological reality of substitutionary sacrifice. The sacrifice of Isaac's life is replaced by another, right? The, the knife is raised to slaughter his son, and the angel of the Lord says, stop. And he turns around, and there's a ram in the bush. And uh, some translations, not ours, but, and I'm not sure it's right or not, but they have the imagery. It's an interesting imagery. Um, 
in, in Europe somewhere that, that they had this idea of that this ram is hanging in the bush, hanging in a tree. And they would, they, their art is drawn around this image of the ram hanging, just like Jesus hanging, suspended between heaven and earth, hanging as a substitute for the sacrifice for the sins of his people. Because uh, this, is, this is, when the angel of the Lord tells them, that in this moment, we have really both Isaac and the ram standing in as types of Christ. Isaac is going as a willing sacrifice, making you think of Isaiah 53, right? Which says that at, though like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Isaac willingly, not with a protest, but obediently going to sacrifice. And a ram caught in the thicket. I do think it's interesting. I don't make too much out of this, but it is interesting that a ram, I mean, how many raised livestock, goats, I mean, a cat, if a cat gets caught somewhere, it's yelling like crazy to get released. And the, but Abraham doesn't hear this ram. He has to turn around and see it. The ram is hanging there, is caught up silent that he sees. Like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And this ram is brought forth and is offered up as a sacrifice. It's as if Good Friday and Easter are all tied up right here in Genesis 22 where we have the death of the son and yet his resurrection because Isaac will live. Though he die, yet will he live. It's Good Friday and Easter all in one. It makes me think of, of Romans chapter 5 when we talk about substitution. Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 11 speaking of this substitution. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So here's this, here's this theological reality of substitution. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, thus deserving of death, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The ram caught in the bush is offered up in place of the people's sinfulness, of the people's judgment that they have coming to him. He, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been now justified by his blood, even much more, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In Genesis 22, something huge is going on here. We're trying to pull our eyes. And, and so thirdly, we have this visitation. We've got to fly along here. There's honestly, there's so many things we could look at. This is actually me reducing the things we could talk about. But we see this visitation the angel of the Lord shows up. And we've seen the angel of the Lord a few times through Genesis, right? This interesting figure. Who is this angel of the Lord? Don't really know. It seems to be more than an angel because he's often referred to and, and spoken to as though he is God. So, Because if your observation skills are on alert, you see this, right? Because the angel of the Lord in verse 12, when he tells him to stop, he says, do not lay your hand on the boy or, anything, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham is not offering a sacrifice to an angel. God has commanded him. He's offering a sacrifice to God. He's going there to worship God. 
And this angel of the Lord says, you have not withheld your only son from me. That something, this is, this is crazy. This, what's going on here is likely, and not, I can't say with 100% certainty, but this angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, you could say the word of the Lord, is there speaking prophetically almost of, of this reality. The son of God, Jesus, likely is here speaking and saying and, and, and fulfillment to himself to, to stop this, that God will provide, that, that, that he has not withheld. And so there is this really interesting visitation. When we look at verse 8, Abraham says, uh, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now, those of you like English, like what is that, what does the my son there mean? Is he saying, God will provide my son? Or is he saying, God will provide my son? And the, the, the Hebrew there is ambivalent. We don't really know. It's, it's ambiguous. We can't really tell. Is he just saying my son because he's speaking to his son? Or is he saying God will provide because it, it's my son. It's you. He'll provide a sacrifice, my son. And in fulfillment, as the angel of the Lord, as God watches all of this, it, it's absolutely true that God will provide a sacrifice and it will be his son, though it isn't Isaac even. It is the coming seed of Abraham who is from the line of Abraham. His son, Jesus Christ, is the sacrifice that will be provided. This, the scope of this thing is incredible. How God is working. Something far beyond the scope of just this event is going on. And then lastly, Revelation. I mean, there, again, we have the location. We have the, the visitation. We have now the, the revelation of who God is here. What does this tell us about God? This last observation speaks to us of God's character and nature. He is the Lord who will provide. Or if you, have, if you have a little note in your Bible and you go down to the bottom, it'll say, we'll see to it. That God will see to it. God will see to this. Meaning he'll, he, he will provide, he will make sure this happens. When you say you're going to have a potluck, who's taking drinks? And they say, I'll see to that. I'll see to that. They're saying, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that happens. I'll see to it. He is the God who will see to it. He is the God who will provide. If you've been around any charismatics or Pentecostalism, you may have heard the term Jehovah Jireh. Have you ever heard Jehovah Jireh? That's this term. It's, it's Yahweh Jireh, but what they... They put J's in for all the Y's, and so they have Jehovah Jireh. But this is the God will provide. God will see to it. And he does, here in this small narrative, he does provide. The ram is brought out. But something grander is going on here. He is the one who will see to it. He is the God who will see to it in the grand sense of that term. Because several thousand years later, he will see to it that after this event of, of the binding of Isaac, the anti-type, Christ, the true fulfillment of all of this is pointing to he will incarnate, he will put on flesh, he will be in the region of the Mount of Moriah, he will like a sheep before it shears is silent, he will not open up his mouth, he will silently and, and obediently put the wood upon his back, walk the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross, and he will go to be crucified in fulfillment to all that God is doing. He'll become a willing substitute laying down his life for the sins of his people. The Lord will see to it. He will provide. This is huge for the people of God. Our God 
is a God who will see to the fulfillment of his purposes. Now, I need to throw this in here as well. God will see to it. He will do what is right, which does mean that if you are not his, God will see to the perfect fulfillment of his purposes. And his judgment will be poured out upon the rebellious and on the evildoer. The unrepentant, wicked, evildoer, God will see to it. Now we hear that and we, we hear a general, oh, that's great. God will see to my good. God will see to his glory. He will see to the provision of grace for his people. And he will see to the judgment of unbelievers. The rebellious, God will see to it. This is not just some, some light general application. Oh, we all should feel great. No, the, we look at the book of Genesis. The judgment against sinners is obvious here. God will see to it. And if we are in rebellion against God, if we hate him and hate his ways, the promise that he will see to it is still true. It's just not a comforting promise. He will see to the fulfillment of his purposes in the judgment of the wicked and the rebellious and eternity in a place called hell. He will see to it. It is a very, very serious thing. He will see to your desired estrangement from his goodness and his benevolence. This is huge. God will see to it. Yet, this does not have to be any of our cases. This does not have to be the reality for any of us because for those who are his by faith and his promises, specifically having turned from sin called repentance, trusting in Christ and his sacrifice as a substitute in our place, he being the ram that was suspended for us, that was offered on the cross in our place, condemned he stood. If we would by faith cling to him, God will not fail. He will see to our full and final redemption, the glorious purpose of the redemption of a people for himself. This is far bigger than just Abraham and his immediate son Isaac. This is bigger than your life or mine. This is God's grand purpose and finding ourselves inside of it. How does this help? So I, I put out on Slack, I've, I've mentioned this before, but it's just happened this week. My friend Scott, who had the, uh, uh, it's a benign brain tumor, but has already lost his vision from it about 30 years ago, and the tumor grew back after, grew back after 25, 30 years. Had to go to University of Iowa. You'd be shocked to me to say this. Go Hawks. Just, no, 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 just because of the University of Iowa. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the University of Iowa this week successful surgery but I'm talking with him Thursday as they get ready for the surgery and you know you just you're opening up to brain surgery you don't know what's going to happen and what comfort can you really I mean it's like hey I'm sure it'll all go fine I'm not sure it's going to go fine I can't tell you if the rest of this day for you goes fine and you're not having brain surgery <laughs> Lord willing <laughs> I can't tell you I can't tell you if you get your next breath sitting here I can't guarantee you that I can't guarantee your heart beats one more, one more beat in this place. I can't guarantee that. What comfort can we give one? What comfort can I give this friend of mine? You cannot accomplish anything in your life if God doesn't give you breath and keep your heart beating. And yet, what is the comfort? I walked through this sermon with him. I walked through these imageries and this promise that God will see to the full restoration and rescue of his people. 
that he can go into surgery and if he doesn't come out the other side of it, God will not fail him and his purposes for his redemption. Whatever you're suffering, whatever you're enjoying, whatever difficulties in front of you, whatever new thing you're trying to figure out, whatever is going on in your life, let it comfort you that nothing escapes his notice. He will see to the full restoration of his people. If you're in rebellion, let this provoke you to obedience, costly obedience. I can say no to the world and its ways, and I can live a strange, I can live different than the world. I can live obedient to Christ, even if the world would shame me and mock me for it. I can live obedient to him, even if it costs me a lot, because this world will not win. He will see to the rescue of his people. I can be emboldened. Because his purposes will not be thwarted. I can risk loving costly other than my neighbor because his purposes will not be thwarted. And I can be strengthened because this God can be trusted. Whatever faces me in my day, something going, is going on far greater, far grander than just what my little world can see. What I can see with my two eyes and the circumstances around me. God is doing something huge. And we as God's people have to ground ourselves in what he is doing because he is the God who will see to it. It is the safest place to bank our life, to anchor ourselves, is, is the safest place to anchor our souls in this God who is working his purposes. He is the God who will see to it. He can be trusted. Let's pray. Oh God, just help us to raise our eyes. So many things to see here. But ultimately, God, there's so much of who you are that, that our minds have very feeble ability to grasp. You are the God who will see to it. And Father, I pray for every heart in this place this morning at various places in their life, I'm sure. Various struggles, various successes, various worries, various anxieties, various sorrows. You are the God who will see to it that if we are yours through faith in Christ, all of your promises to us are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. There is no good thing that you will withhold from your people. And that the day is coming, the great day of the Lord, when you will return, when heaven and earth will become one and we will be in the joy of your presence forever. And God, you will see to it. The God who can take the several thousand years of distance from Isaac through David and Solomon down to Jesus and perfectly work out your purposes, raising Jesus from the dead. We can trust you that you will see to your good purposes for your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.